Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be here and to come together to study your word and to um, eat and experience joy and to have people stand with us as we are struggling oftentimes too. We ask God that you would meet us in all of that. You would draw our hearts close to you and that we would um, be in a space where we're open to your movement and open to hearing your story in our midst. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. That is a sukkah. Isn't it beautiful? So God makes the commandment eight days out of every year. You have to hang out in a fort. And this is like the best holiday for all kids ever because their parents are commanded by God to get into a fort and to celebrate. And I regularly walk into my front room and have the entire couch taken apart. And then there's like kitchen chairs and other chairs. And and, and he's really good at making the fort. Um, (laughs) Taking the fort down after is not the same fun. It's just not the same fun. After, right, exactly. They have to wait the full eight days before they can come down year-round in my home. But I hope you can continue to enjoy the beautiful hospitality of this season. And one of the commandments is that you are going to celebrate and invite people in and everyone sort of welcome into your, we call it in the New Testament, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Gospel of John says that Jesus shows up on the last and greatest day of the feast and says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Um, And streams of living water will come from within him. So perfect that this last week, a few of us at Spark welcomed a new refugee family from um, Eritrea via Cairo, via Giza in Egypt. They'd been there for the last eight years plus um, from Eritrea there and then to here. And so even though they've arrived, they still aren't in a permanent place of housing. Um, They're still waiting for housing to become available. They have to do all the job search thing. And even the last family that we've partnered and supported, um, Supan is still looking for a job. Um, And so all of those um, opportunities for us to welcome, to practice hospitality, to welcome the stranger in, um, and to help them find a place, um, you are invited to join us in all of that. So if you are interested in more um, of what they need, or if you want to help come alongside for mentoring or English lessons or all those things, we're going to be having more information with IRC, um, International Rescue Committee, um, to be able to help us prepare for that. So for those of you who've already partnered with us thus far, thank you. Um, and for those of you who've even just contributed financially to Spark, we were able to go and buy them uh, groceries today at the halal market and make sure that they were comfortable and, uh, and take them out and walk around and get lots of pizza and all those fun things that happen. Have you ever been, anyone traveled to another country where you did not speak the language? That is an overwhelming experience, right? And imagine being alone and this mom has seven kids. The oldest is 24. So he's like the man of the house and his English is pretty good. And so we went to the salad bar at Mountain Mike's and um, everybody made a plate full of dressing. We're like, oh, we should have modeled this first. So this is actually just a sauce because then they were like, why do you eat this? And we're like, yeah, we don't eat bowls of ranch. But I can see why that was very confusing. And I have been that person when I've traveled into other countries and other places. I've had to learn all of those things. So I want to say thank you so much. I know that there are times... um, in our dialogue, in our discourse, in our own families, we're going to talk about this today with sibling rivalry, where we can feel like we are not given the opportunity nationally to extend a warm welcome. But you guys are actually extending a very warm welcome right now, this very moment. And because of you, um, of this beautiful family has some things that they need and, and they are starting to feel less afraid. So thank you for that. So let's get into Numbers chapter 12. And the topic 
today is sibling rivalry. Sound good? Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Just in case you were wondering, and maybe he didn't write this book. I don't know. Maybe he didn't. Um, At once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions, and I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face. Clearly, not in riddles, he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was stricken leprous. It actually doesn't say leprous. There's like this one general word in Hebrew that's used to sort of connote all skin diseases, leprosy being one of them. Obviously, what happened wasn't good. Stricken leprous, and it became white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. That's probably the best definition of the word in Hebrew. And he said to Moses, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold us, hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. It's quite an image, isn't it? Um, In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of your Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, it adds the words as like as an aborted baby, like as one aborted, right? So Moses cried out to the Lord, please God heal her. And the Lord replied to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days and the people did not move on until she was brought back. And after that, the people left Hazarot and encamped in the desert of Paran. There ends our reading in Numbers 12. This is like a favorite Sunday school lesson, isn't it, right? Uh, You're growing up, you were like, I can't wait till we talk about how Miriam got leprosy. And I was shocked that there was even like Sunday school lessons on this, like to make a sad day, right? And then this woman has created a one woman, one puppet, one act play about the prophetess who found herself on the wrong side of God. And I kept, I was working on this earlier, and Phoebe kept going, what is wrong with that picture? And I'm like, yeah, no, it's disturbing. I don't know why this would be the choice for the one woman, one act, one puppet play uh, would be this story. But here at Spark, we love these stories. We're just going to dive on in. And let's at least first ask the question, who is Miriam? Where does she show up in our story, and why do we care about her, and what's happening? Well, if you'll recall, very early on, Miriam was the older sister of Moses, and she helped to hide Moses away, and then watched as Moses was found in the teva, in that papyrus basket. If those sparkles remember, the word teva is the same word in Hebrew for giant floating zoo, for Noah's ark. So giant floating zoo, ark, or tiny baby basket is teva, because it's a redeeming vessel. God's going to redeem his people, and it's the only real two times that those that word is used. So Miriam watches the Teva, this redeeming vessel, and she waits to see Pharaoh's daughter come out and pull Moses out, drawing him out of the water, and then has 
the courage to be able to say, hey, I know a wet nurse and is able then to arrange for Moses' own mother to be able to be paid to feed him and care for him. Miriam also is the one that as they are coming up out of Egypt, after they've been set free from Pharaoh and his armies and his empire, then Miriam the prophet It says in your Bible in Exodus chapter 15, Aaron's sister took a timbrel in her hand and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. And she sang to them, sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. Miriam is a prophet. Miriam has been instrumental in the entire movement of God's people at the very beginning of God's people being redeemed, making sure that Moses would be able to be taken care of and be safe. Um, Moses doesn't become Moses without his mother, without Shephron, Pua, the midwives, without Miriam, without his wife later, Zipporah, who will save him. Um, Moses is only Moses because of these women in his life who have sustained his life and brought him to this moment. And Miriam is one of that one of those key persons. And she's the one that has the wherewithal to remember when she's fleeing Egypt to bring a tambourine. So good for her. She's ready. She's a prophet. She is ready to lead worship and to lead dance. So in light of all of that, then doesn't it seem to you and me, at least when I read that numbers passage, I'm like Miriam's punishment seems a little harsh. What is going on? What is happening here? Well, leprosy was often considered in the ancient Near East a punishment for an offense against the deity in Israel and also in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Like anything that you had done against God or slandered against God, any of that kind of conversation and talk, leprosy became seen as a punishment for that. Fortunately, the entire book of Leviticus is how to come back from those moments, right? So if you have these things, here's what you do and here's how you solve it. So something like that might be going on. What is it specifically that they're doing or saying? And by the way, what about Aaron? It says that the two of them were there talking, right? Well, in the Hebrew, it says, Vataber, Vataber, and explicitly it is a feminine singular noun. It's not common. So it's, it's yes, Miriam said this, she feminine singular said it, but Aaron was standing right there along at the same time, but he doesn't seem to be the one also saying the words. He's not starting this slander against Moses. And Miriam is mentioned first before Aaron, which is unusual. So at least in the text, we have some clues that it's maybe not quite equal. Whatever happened there between Miriam and Aaron, Aaron, Miriam was more responsible in that moment. But I still have a problem, right? It's still a little bit weird. So let's ask the question then, where does this story fit into the larger context of the book of Numbers? Well, last week we talked about that wrath and fire of God, the holiness of God, that after only three days of complaint, they were three days of walking, they complained and like fire takes out some of the people. And that's verse, that's chapter 11. And then right after that, they complain against God because they don't like the manna. Um, the ma, na, like what is this? Ma in Hebrew, what, what is this? Um, they don't know, they don't want to eat the what is it anymore. And so they complain against that. They're complaining about the meat. They miss the vegetables of Egypt. They miss the, the fish found in Egypt out of the Nile. And they don't want to eat this meat anymore. And God sends them so much quail that it's coming out of their nostrils and it's just disgusting. So we have this 
if this response, maybe an overcorrection, perhaps, <laughs> when they start to complain against God, bad things happen, right? And then in the middle of that, it's Numbers 12, where Miriam and Aaron speak against the Lord, against Moses and against God's anointed, and there's leprosy that shows up. And right after this, then, in Numbers 13 and 14, they're going to send out the 12 spies. The 12 spies are going to come back and say, we cannot go. Ten of them, two of them are like, no, we can do it. And 10 of them come back and say, this is terrible. We can't go. I can't believe the Lord brought us up here out of Egypt. We're just going to die here in this desert. This is going to be bad. And they start to doubt and complain again, and they get a 40-year timeout. They're going to have to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years. So that's the context. So maybe in light of that, and in light of a verse like this in Numbers 14, where God says, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not trust me with all the signs that I have done in their midst? And then in number 16, the rebellion of Korah rising up against Moses brings fire and then an opening up of the earth. Again, with the children's crafts, I have to tell you, I taught children's ministry for years. I never taught this story to children. But uh, here's a way that you can illustrate with some really cool origami the, the opening up of the earth and swallowing of an entire family. So, um, so in light, it is terrible. Yeah. So in light of all of that, maybe Miriam kind of gets off a little bit easy, right? She's only got a seven day timeout. Um, her skin gets restored, right? And she's going to come back. So, so at least, yes, let's just be honest. I don't like the story. That's why I don't teach it to kids, right? Why do I want to teach a story about how a woman says one thing and there's a guy with her and he doesn't get blamed. And then the woman gets blamed and then she's like leprous and it's like, yeah, I don't like it. Right. Um, but in light of all of it, maybe it's not so bad because this whole thing seems to be what is going on about the book of numbers saying that if you don't trust God and by extension, Moses, then you're not going to survive. Your trust of the Lord and your trust of God's people in this scenario and in this setting is essential to your survival, Israel. And if you don't do it, you're going to die. Quite literally, right? Fire, earth opening up, eating you and your family, all those kinds of things. But also, they need to be able to trust and follow God over and over and over again. Otherwise, they're not going to make their way through the wilderness for 40 years or eventually into the promised land. I think that's part of what's going on. I think for me today, another thing that I see there is just some sibling rivalry and jealousy, which is a very old story, right? I did not hit you. I simply high-fived your face. Um, that when you, if anybody grew up with a sibling, that I, I have heard too, I'm, I've not yet parented two young ones. I have, a, I have a much older one and a much younger one. So they, they love each other and they're fine. And the older one knows not to high-five their sister in the face, right? So it's fine. But I've heard that if you add another young one, it's almost like adding not just another child, but like a third child, because you now have to parent the entity of the two of them coming together, right? Like, like I have to parent you and I have to parent you. And then when the two of you get together, there's like a whole other thing that I have to parent in this mix. And that sibling rivalry we have with Moses and Aaron and Miriam right out here in this moment. I don't think that they are angry entirely about Moses's wife. I don't think that's really what this is about. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked, and hasn't he also spoken through us? Right? Moses is the youngest, and he's been elevated, and he is leading God's people, and he's the one that gets to meet God face to face. And they're not really complaining about Moses' wife, whatever that complaint might be, and is it Zipporah, or is it another woman, and what's the problem, and where is she from? And you can, all, all the interpreters have all these fun debates about all that. I think the real thing here is, hey, my brother, what's the thing that kids always want? Like, is it even? Is it fair? Right? 
I mean, the moment you're pouring juice for two kids, everybody gets right down on the eye level and starts to just look. They want to make sure that it's fair and that it's even. And in the midst of this story, it fits quite well with the rest of our huge biblical narrative, right? Genesis starts out with sibling rivalry, with a conflict between Cain and Abel, where Cain has made an offering that God has frowned upon. God tries to teach him how to do right. Abel has made a good offering. Cain's like, I'm not going to do right. I'm just going to kill my brother. That'll solve this problem. No competition, right? And then I'll be the one who's in the right all the time. And that's not the case. Immediately we have the first murder is the first is fratricide, right? Every murder from that point forward gets to be considered sibling against sibling. And not long after that, once we get into our Abraham story, Abraham will um, not quite understand what God is saying when he says that there's going to be a child of the promise. And he'll take Hagar as his wife and bear Ishmael. Hagar will bear Ishmael. And in that moment then, later on, Ishmael is going to be put aside. And there is a sibling rivalry right away between Ishmael and Isaac after Isaac is born. And we have that loss, that fracture between those sibling relationships. And it continues with Jacob and Esau, twins, right? One hairy and caveman-like, the other one, you know, likes to hang out in the home. And Esau is so hungry, like me hungry stew now, that he sells his birthright to Jacob And then later on, Jacob's even going to trick his father, Isaac, and stealing the firstborn blessing. Esau gets so angry about this that he's going to hold a grudge against Jacob, and he's going to decide, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill my brother. We're still in Genesis, guys. Every single brother setting, like people are not getting along. It's not working well. Let's take Joseph and his brothers. They don't like him so much that they sell him into slavery. I mean, this is like a, I don't know how you come back from that moment, right? At the family reunion, when you get together next time, it's, you know, yes, but you sold me into slavery. I mean, there, there's some tough moments there. There's a, a current, it's been in the news like the last couple of days. There's a campaign for an Arizona representative, right? And all, like six of his siblings came out for the opponent and made a political commercial on the opponent for the opponent. And they're like, my brother is terrible. Six siblings. Talk about Paul Ghost. I mean, it's, I would show you the video, except it's just so sad and upset. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also really sad. Like they, they pull the punchline at the end and that, that's my brother. Um, how do you come back from that? What's Thanksgiving look like after you've made a political campaign commercial for your brother's opponent? I don't know how that works. These are common problems within all of our settings. So how does God handle this problem between Moses, Miriam, and Aaron? What does God do? Well, the first thing God does is he's like, all right, three of you, come here right now. Let's go. All three. Is that something the parent does too, right? Like the parent pulls everybody in right there. Let's have a conversation. Everybody come here. Now, did you do, did you do like, let's have this conversation. You can always tell right away which kid is guilty, right? They, they never can really hide it very well. At least I felt like I was hiding it when I was a child, but clearly no, Um, it didn't work out that way. One of the things that God models for us right away is that reconciliation is going to require everyone. It requires everyone to come. It requires all three, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, to all stand there together before God, with God, and start to have a conversation. And God's going to have this conversation. Like, how did you dare to speak against not just me, but Moses? We talk face to face. And in the middle of this, then Miriam is going to get stricken with this disease. And in the middle of that moment, Moses will cry out to the Lord, please God heal her. Now, 
I hear a lot that the only reason why we should ever have to reconcile is if the person owns what they've done. But that's not the case here, is it? We don't see Moses going, well, does Miriam really understand what she did wrong? Instead, he just immediately begs for her restoration. Moses, the wronged one, is the one to cry out for her to be healed. I think in part, that's super important, right? We have to have Moses be there. He has to be the one that says he wants her to come back in. Whether or not she understands, we have this very clearly in our Gospels, by the way, right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's forgiveness already offered by our Messiah, even though they, there is not knowledge or understanding on the part of those who are persecuting him. So in that moment, we have a model of first coming before God, everyone all together, and Moses' willingness, even though he's the one wronged, to extend and to beg and to show compassion and desire restoration for his sister, whether or not there's actual, like, let's sit down and use our I feel statements. And I find that very challenging. Like, am I really willing to cry out to God for the people that have wronged me? Or do I want to know that they know first and then I'll cry out to God? I'm just being honest. I want to know that they know what they've done wrong and then I'll cry out to God for them. So I'm challenged by that piece of this puzzle coming before God and then Moses crying out, being willing to cry out. Aaron cries out too for Miriam. Both of them together cry out for her to be restored. In the middle of all this difficulty in this context, I'm also really impressed that God treats Miriam as a daughter. That he uses this father analogy, right? The Lord plays, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Like, yes, Miriam is going to be in disgrace for seven days, but she's still part of the family. So even when we're at our worst, we still belong in God's family. Now, that is difficult because there's a whole bunch of people that I think right now are at their worst, and I want them voted off the island out, go. This is not a Christianity that I recognize, but that's not what's happening here. God is still treating all of his children as though they belong to him, regardless of their worst behavior in the moment. And whether you're on the right or the left or the top or the bottom, or whether you're blue or red or purple or all the way between, or whether you are um, all the brothers and sisters that find ourselves calling on, on our common father, Abraham, God of the father, Abraham, right? In all of that, God is still saying that God is the father of all and that God is responsible for all, regardless of whether we may or may not be at our worst or our best at any given moment. The text then just tells us that Miriam is going to be confined outside to the camp for seven days, and then after that, she can be brought back. So Miriam's confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back, and after that, then they left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. This tells us that family conflicts, sibling rivalries impact everyone, right? We don't get to pretend that the sibling rivalry that we're having right now within the larger conversation of American Christianity is not impacting everybody because it is, it's impacting everyone. That, that family with that political commercial, we're all now privy to that really sad state of affairs where siblings aren't talking to one another for sure right? They have gone to the opponent, his opponent in the race and said, we're for you instead. How do you come back from those moments? And how do you not recognize that 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 conflict, what Miriam and Aaron do and with Moses, now that it impacts the entire Israelite community, their march then is going to be delayed another seven days. This, they've not yet been 
given their 40-year time out. They're on their way to the land of Israel, to the land of Canaan, and they aren't that far. This conflict, it impacts everybody. And we also find out from this passage that reconciliation takes time. That when we're in these moments where we're heated and we're upset and we're angry and we're having that sibling rivalry moment, and it might be with somebody whom you agree most with but have that one core key disagreement. Have you ever found that? Like, it's, Isn't it much easier for you to be in agreement with somebody who's not in your own family? right? You can have more ex- compassion for somebody outside of your family group. Like, it's easier for me to look at outside of my faith and say, well, they don't have the same ethic I have. They don't have maybe the same core that I have regarding the person of Jesus. We just are going to look at things differently. I have compassion. I can wait on that. But when it's within my same family of faith, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Let's get it together. Jesus clearly said this, right? But reconciliation takes time because when those conflicts happen, do you guys remember that? Adele SNL sketch a little while ago, like they're all around the Thanksgiving table. They're angry. They're yelling. But then every once in a while, the little girl put on the Adele hello song and then they all sing the song and they're fine, right? That when we get along those Thanksgiving tables and we start to argue, it gets so heated that there's very few things in those moments that can stop the conversation and pull it back. We're just going to start yelling. So then we have family rules, right? Like no politics at the Thanksgiving table. No discussions about these heated debates because we're going to get so triggered and so angry. The amygdala is going to hijack the conversation and our fight or flight response will, will kick in very quickly. And this doesn't have to be about big issues. It can be about an issue that's, you know, someone took great grandmother's, you know, teapot and never gave it back and was supposed to be mine. And don't you know, and we immediately have, everyone gets hot and angry and upset and people move from a four to an eight super quick. And when the amygdala jumps in and hijacks that conversation, there's nothing to be done. That's positive. Now we're just yelling. And God seems to understand this. Miriam needs seven days outside the camp and the people need seven days, maybe without Miriam, right? Maybe day one and two, you're like, I can't believe we have to wait here for another seven days. Can she, could she not have, could we please, can we just, right? And then we're like, well, maybe, well, I do see, I mean, Moses does walk around with that shiny face. Maybe they start to generate a little bit of compassion for what Miriam might've been feeling. So the community waits and Miriam waits and the amygdala, that fight or that flight response that comes in sibling conflict and rivalry and family conflict, that starts to calm down. And I think to myself, well, am I willing to wait for my brothers and sisters to join me? Am I willing to give them the time and the space that they need to let the amygdala stop firing and to pull back down from that response? Because the world is changing and it can feel very scary. Because things aren't the same as they've always been. They're changing all the time. Now, that's always true. Things have never been the same way that they've always been, right? But some people, given different experiences and circumstances, start to have that immediate fight-or-flight response. And there's not a good conversation ready to be had. Years ago, the, um, the nearly inerrant version of your Bible, the NIV, that translation had a 1984 translation that most of us have often carried around. And they decided to 
fix, the, just fix some issues they knew that were there in the translation. The NIV, it was called today's NIV, and they put out TNIV. People were so angry about those very small, minute changes that they started setting the NIVs, the new ones, on fire on, in yards. Now, first of all, you have to know that people who are not Christian are like, what are you doing? Because some of these word changes were like actually fixed to match the more current, like the actual manuscript. There were errors that had been made. They'd been fixed, but it had gotten around and it was not the case, but it had gotten around that they were making God gender neutral. People had to freak out, right? They're saying that God is without gender. Well, God, the creator is without gender. Okay. So, um, so that's part of the problem, right? We're going to fix that. And people had an amygdala response and they just fought it. Or they decided that they're just going to jump all the way to the ESV and that's going to be their book for now. And then the TNIV ended up having to come off the shelves. It, it failed as a marketing campaign. It didn't work. Now, they ended up still making the changes, but they had to call it something different, had to shift to something different. This, this amygdala response, it, it makes us freak out. And yet, are we willing to go, okay, that person who's just decided that they're so angry about this has lit the NIV on fire, the TNIV on fire, like... Am I willing to wait for them to calm down for we, so we can have a conversation? Or do I just want to go, you're crazy. This is honestly more my leaning. And I want to just walk over here with other people that also think that you're crazy. But this is my family. This is my family of faith. And I think I really want them to come along. I don't want them to be stuck with a burning pile of Bibles on their front lawn. That sounds like a really sad place to be. I'd rather have them have a conversation And we can decide together what we can agree with. Now, after big conflict like that, it's people are wounded. They're hurt. We need timeouts. We need to take breaks. But after conflict like that, peacemakers, not peacekeepers, by the way, it's very different. Peacemakers. Somebody who keeps the peace might be somebody who just doesn't want to deal with the conflict. A peacemaker is somebody who finds what the conflict is and then pushes for reconciliation and for peacemaking in it. After conflict, peacemakers look for a way back in for everyone. This is really hard work. It's not easy. But we have it also modeled in our Bible. Remember Ishmael and Isaac, right? Broken, set apart. But guess what? They show back up together when their father dies. They come together to bury Abraham. And they're back together. We have a picture right away in the Bible of some brotherly reconciliation. Jacob and Esau, Esau who wants to kill Jacob, they reunite. Esau runs to meet Jacob and embraces him, throws his arms around his neck and kisses him and they weep. There's reconciliation in these family sibling relationships. Joseph and his brothers, you remember Joseph? He's like, then he says to his brothers, now he's been made head of Egypt, right? When he said, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here because it was God. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Reconciliation of this family, of these brothers, again in our story. And Miriam, when Miriam passes away in the wilderness of Zin, the whole community stops and mourns. Do you know how few individuals overwhelmingly, it's ever told in our Bible that they died and people mourned for them. Very few, let alone women. And Miriam is remembered in this moment. Her, her passing means something. The community has welcomed her back in and they are 
are mourning that loss when she passes away. And maybe it's these images of reconciliation that the Bible has in mind when Psalm 133 is written. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together as one. When brothers, it's literally like dwell or sit. When the brothers sit as one. How good and pleasant it is. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard down to the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Mount Hermon in the farthest northern portion of Israel, that dew were falling on Mount Zion. The place where it snows is all the way down in Jerusalem. Like that, that's how good and pleasant it is when brothers come together as one. And there the Lord bestows his blessings even to life anymore. See, God's whole Bible tells a story of reconciliation. And in Jesus's ministry, this is coming the whole time, particularly for those of us who are very put off by Miriam's treatment with women. Jesus is always trying to find a way for people who have been put out to come back in, to be reconciled again. And when the woman who's caught in adultery is brought to him, he doesn't push her out further. He protects her and finds a way for her to come back in. The woman at the well, the woman with the issue of blood, the widow, Mary sitting at his feet, all of those women being brought back in. And one of his, my favorite parables that he ever tells in Luke chapter 15, right? The parable of lost things, lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. It's all about coming back in. That the father wants you to be reconciled, wants us to be reconciled to him, but also to one another. And that beautiful parable and amazing teaching of Jesus ends with a question. If you're the older brother and you're sitting outside and you're angry at the father's lavish love to bring that one back in, don't you want to come in too? It ends with the question. We don't know what the son does. There's two lost sons. We don't know where that other son chooses to do. And Jesus's whole ministry is pushing on this reconciliation. And ultimately, this is the large view of what we're all hoping for, isn't it? That God, Isaiah 2, God will judge between the nations and they'll settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation for, and they will not train for war anymore. This ultimate reconciliation is something that we believe God is pushing all of the world to. And it's hard work and it's difficult and it's one of Spark's core values. And if you haven't read about that core value recently, I highly commend you to go onto our values page and read about why reconciliation is one of the core values here at Spark. Because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation through Christ himself. And this is our work. This is our job. And reconciliation doesn't mean linking arms and saying everything's okay and I'm just going to continue to act, let you act mean or bigoted, or racist, or whatever it is. Instead, reconciliation is about that hard work of coming back together and grabbing all those other values that are right along to, particularly love, and pushing that back into that space and finding a way back together. It's why we love Mr. Rogers, right? Because Mr. Rogers is all about reconciliation and love. We see him reconciling himself to all of the kids that are there in all their various states. We see him attending to the amygdalas that happen during death or divorce or in racial conversation. We love Mr. Rogers because he's good at this, but it's really hard work and we're not all Mr. Rogers. That's why we we put him up on a pedestal because it's like, well, 
only Mr. Rogers can do that work. It's not something I can do. But Justin Lee came here recently, didn't he? And he talked about his new book that's just been released, Letters Are Into Talking Across the Divide. And he talked about how do we have these conversations? How do we have a conversation with somebody that we totally and completely disagree with, but find a way to do that in a productive manner where our amygdalas aren't flying off, where we're still trying to find ways back in. And we do it in a way that doesn't harm somebody forever, right? We're trying to find a way back in with one another. And you feel like all, I feel like no matter who is on what side of whatever social issue or public discourse. It feels like everyone is out to demonize that other person and punish them forever and never allow them a way back in. And I get it. I, I think there's some people that should just be on permanent timeout. And I would like one of the other chapters of the book of numbers to apply to them, opening the ground up fire, any of those other things. Right. So, uh, but ultimately that is not the way of Jesus. And that's not the vision that God has. And it's not the calling that we have as God's people. So coming next spring, Kevin has decided, because he's incredible and amazing at this. And he's kind of like Spock. His amygdala doesn't fire as well. So he's really like really good at these conversations. Um, He's going to invite Justin Lee and Preston Sprinkle, who are both Christians, both members of the Christian faith, both amazing brothers, but disagree significantly to come and have a conversation together. And he's, Kevin has gone to all these churches with the river and Sequoia and highway and brave maker and new all these other groups and said, Hey, why don't you guys come sponsor this event and come be part of this dialogue? Even though wouldn't we all agree? Like we have significant and not so significant agreements and disagreements with all of the people on that page, right? And we'll find ourselves aligning more with one than the other. This is what Spark's all about. That we want to have these tough conversations. We want to wrestle with those questions. I don't know if you noticed in the children's song this, this afternoon, but there was like, when the questions come, when the silence is there. And I'm like, that's so cool that kids at Spark are like, when there's questions, I can still, yes, because we're teaching our kids to ask questions and to hold all those tensions and to reconcile all of those things. And ultimately, all of this is going to lead us right back into love. Love never fails. When you and I don't know what to do, when we don't know how to even start that reconciliation conversation, honestly, there are certain people out there that we probably shouldn't be talking to because we're not ready and it's not going to go well, or they're not ready and it's not going to go well. But then we pray and we can pray for them and we can pray for God to change our heart and we can pray for their heart to change. And all of these things can shift because we believe in a God that is living and active. And if nothing else, this is, I thought, I saw this 10 commandments of a church in England recently and a, a sort of movement group. They just had a conference. These were the 10 commandments that they suggested for the conference attendees. Bring biscuits. Those are cookies for those of you not familiar with the UK, right? Be a Twitter angel. I don't know what that is, but I'm pretty sure it's probably not what happens most on Twitter. Um, Disagree well. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Encourage others. Buy the first round. Excellent. Um, See the good in everyone. Keep the faith and choose love. If we just start with some of these things, right? If we just start with buying everybody around and sitting down and having a conversation. If we start with listening. And trying to understand, seeking first to understand, seeking first to love the person on the other side of the divide. I think that there's some hope for how we can start to reconcile some of these differences and at least find ourselves at the table. Because we're not always going to be right here in this moment. Let's hope. 
Let's hope, too, that our nation will not always be right here at this moment. Even if it's just for me, like my heart beats on the issue of of refugees and reconciliation. And my heart breaks when I hear that we are keeping people out or that we are making life difficult for people who are already here or that we are separating family members. And I don't want it to always be like that. And I'm trusting it won't be. But I'm also trying to figure out how am I going to share the table with some of the architects of this policy five years from now, 10 years from now when things are different? Am I willing to let them come back in? If they've repented, if we've reconciled, or am I always going to want to say, you're the one that separated that child from that mother, and I just can't talk to you anymore? Or am I willing to let them come back in? Am I willing to buy around? Am I willing to listen? Am I willing to let them have their own time out and come down off the fear and the response that their amygdala had and instead start to come back in? I don't, I don't know. It might depend if it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I'm not always going to be in that spot. But I have a dear friend here at Spark who constantly tells me that she's just always trying to help people come a little bit closer and a little bit back in. And that's my hope. Wherever we find ourselves in the family of God, whatever our conversation is, whether it's our own family where the discord is or whether it's at work or at school or within our larger faith community, my prayer is that we will see in the example of Moses and Miriam and this community and what God does here, a way to come back in and some practical ways just to calm down, take a deep breath and find the way of Jesus in this moment of loving one another, loving the least of these. And we might be that very person deep in need of that love and of that revelation of what it is that we've done that's wrong how we've doubted God or how we've doubted another and how we can come back into that community. Amen. Jesus help. Um, We have a core value here of reconciliation because we see that in you, that you have reconciled us to you, to the father, to one another through your life and your death and your resurrection. And Jesus, we also confess to you that we are not good at this, that in a time and a day when things are polarized and difficult, that it's so easy to draw lines between us and them, between wrong and right. And we ask right now, Lord, that you would help us to find ways to practice your extension of love and grace and your open arms where you're always seeking to bring somebody closer back home. Jesus, may we be filled with your love and with your hope. Give us the skills that we need to be quiet, to be slow to speak, to listen well, and to try to hear how your heart beats for your people. We ask this in your name. Amen.